0: You can make your way back to your seat. You can make your way back to your seat and we're going to get into God's Word together. If you're new here this morning and we haven't met, my name is Brent Smith, and uh, I am one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and it is good to hear all the chatter. It's good that we're in community together. And all right, ooh, Dave turned me up. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We've been in here for a few weeks now. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be up on the screen as well. And again, it's the only slide that I have, so I apologize again for that. We'll get on track here someday. Uh, But right now, we're just going with a title slide and a Scripture slide. So we've been in 2 Corinthians for a while. It's a letter written by a guy named Paul. To a church in Corinth, Greece, and uh, for the last few weeks we've been working our way through it. And so far we've seen that Paul, uh, with a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, planted this church in Corinth. He stayed there a year to see it established. And then he moved on to continue his apostolic work. And after he left, uh, Paul continued uh, contact with the church to support the church and encourage them. But it didn't take long for things to go a bit south, things to go a bit sour, and uh, the relationship kind of deteriorated. And not everyone, but a good chunk of the church in Corinth uh, had actually turned on Paul and had begun criticizing his work as an apostle and doubting his character. And so Paul sits down and writes 2 Corinthians to help uh, bring reconciliation to that relationship, to help repair this broken relationship between apostle and church. And it's the most real and emotional of all of Paul's letters. He really opens up and lets us see into the life of the apostle. And so one of the major beefs that the church had with Paul is that they saw him as a weak man who suffered much. And um, they just saw that this suffering made him unfit to be an apostle. And so we looked at that for the last couple of weeks. Their idea was, you know, if you're an apostle, where's all the glory? Where's all the triumph? Uh, you you suffer. You're weak. Uh, where's all the you know the the pomp and the triumph and your, all the, all this talk about hardship and suffering and all the things that you've gone through and all the trials. And Paul sets right off right off the bat. Paul sets out to correct that way of thinking. And so hopefully we've seen that over the last uh, couple weeks when we've looked at the first 11 verses of Corinth of of Second Corinthians. And Paul shows the Corinthians that far from making him unfit to be an apostle, his suffering actually works for him and better equips him to be an apostle. And so, uh, if you took notes the last two weeks, you'll know these things. But uh, for as we looked at the God of all comfort, and then last time when we looked at how we can suffer differently, Paul has showed us six things that suffering does in God's people. It enables us to experience God's abundant comfort for ourselves. It equips us to pass that comfort on to others who are suffering. It brings us to rely on God and not on ourselves. It grows our faith as we reflect on God's past and future deliverance. It causes us to reach out to others for help, and it results in more praying and praising for the church. Okay, so those are the six things that Paul has kind of laid out in the first 11 verses to show us that suffering doesn't make him unfit to be an apostle. It actually prepares him and better equips him to be an apostle. Okay, so we're going to jump into verse 12, and Paul's going to move his attention to a different focus. And, and he's not so much focused on, um, on the idea of suffering, uh, but he's going to take a different, a different road because those Corinthians had a few beefs with them, And so he's going to tackle some other things. And so just to say off the bat, I'll read. Uh, it is a, a bit of a difficult passage. It's, uh, it's a little hard to follow Paul. And we're going to read it in the ESV. There are translations that I found really make it a lot easier to understand. Um, but we're going to stick with the ESV because well, who knows why. That's what I have here. And so... If I brought a different Bible, it would be bigger and it would throw me off. And right, So we're going to read the ESV and hopefully we get a good understanding of it as we go. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 12. So Father, as we come to your word, we just pray that you would help us. We acknowledge our weaknesses. Uh, I acknowledge my weakness to preach your word. We all acknowledge our weakness to receive your word. Uh, we come with hard hearts and we ask that you would soften them. Uh, we ask, we come with, with uh, distracted minds and we pray that you would focus them and we want to receive from you, from your word. And so we pray that you would come by your spirit and we pray that, uh, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand your word uh, because we don't want to just be hearers of your word, we want to be doers. And so we pray, Father, that you come by your spirit and help us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. My apologies if it's a little small, but I wanted to stick with that two-slide thing I got going on, right? <laughs> so, I didn't want to make Josh have to go back and forth between a few different slides. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So second experience of grace. He wanted to visit them on the way to Macedonia. Then he'd go to Macedonia. When he turned around, he wanted to visit them on the way back. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who who has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts As a guarantee. All right, I told you it was a bit tricky, but here we go. So, Paul begins to provide a defense here against some accusations that some of the Corinthians have leveled against him, and defending yourself is never a great place to be in. It's always a bit awkward, and most often we try to defend ourselves when we're really in the wrong and shouldn't be defending ourselves, right? We've hurt someone, uh, we've, um, we've been sharp with our children or whatever it might be, and we can be so quick to take the stand and begin to spout out the reasons why we were justified in our actions, right? So, well, all I was doing was, or well, well, you're the one who did this first, right? Maybe that's just me. Or maybe you're with me. You're with me. Good. Yeah, yeah. It's always awkward when you say this is what we do and you're the only one who does it. <laughs> I was thinking of Mark's last year about the gun to his head when he's shooting about bat. Remember that one? Uh, no? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <sighs> and we're all like, no, we're the... just you. You can listen to it. It's online. Last year sometime. But I wanted to bring that up so we can make sure that it is not what Paul is doing here. Paul's not defending some wrong actions, okay? So I don't want you to go home and say, well, Paul defended his actions, so now I'm going to defend these even though I've caused you hurt and pain because that's what Paul did. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul here is justly defending uh, his right conduct. He says he behaved in its clear conscience. He behaved with simplicity and sincerity towards them. And Paul's defending his character and the reason he's doing so is because as an apostle, he knows that it's not just his integrity that's at stake, but the integrity of the gospel. It's not just his good name being dragged through the mud. As an apostle of Jesus, it will be Jesus's good name being dragged through the mud as well. And so that's why Paul is so firm to defend uh, how he's acted towards the Corinthians. And maybe you've been in that position before where you need to defend yourself because the gospel is at stake. Um, But some of us can get in that situation. But I think whenever we are in a position where we need to defend ourselves, it's always a bit awkward. It's not the great position to be in. But that's where Paul finds himself here in writing to the Corinthians. And the main accusation that the Corinthians had against Paul here is that Paul had told them he was going to come visit on his way to Macedonia and then stop in again on his way back. We saw that in verses 15 and 16, but then he didn't do that. His plans changed and the Corinthians were hurt by that. And understandably so, we're talking about two visits from the Apostle Paul. And if you think of yourself as, you know, a small church in the big city Corinth and Here's the guy who planted you and stayed with, the year, with you for a year, building uh, relationships and encouraging you, and you think you're going to see him twice this year. He's going to come, and then he's going to go, and he's going to come back, and then plans change. And so the, the Corinthians were hurt by that, but in that hurt, they then just jump on him and accuse him, and first they accuse him of being a fraud, a fake, a phony, whatever you want to Say, he talks all about being led by the Spirit. Well, obviously he isn't if he just cancels his travel plans like this. He tries to set himself up as a spiritual man, but really he just goes by earthly wisdom. He's no different from a businessman who just changes his plans over what's most efficient or what's most practical. He says he's a spiritual man, but really he just operates in the flesh with worldly wisdom. Wisdom. He's a fake. He's a he's a divided man who teaches and tries to present one thing, but in reality is the opposite. So that was one accusation against him. So that's why Paul starts out by telling them that he has behaved with simplicity. And some of your translations might say holiness there. Simplicity here doesn't mean like uh, minimalism. All right, Paul's not saying to the Corinthians that he threw out his TV and became a vegan, right? He's what he's saying is that this simplicity is is or or if your or if your Bible says holiness, it's about single-mindedness. Okay, so simplicity here is the opposite of duplicity. <clears throat> The point that Paul is saying is that he isn't a deceiver. He isn't a fraud. He isn't one thing to one person and something else to another person. He isn't a divided man. He is simple. He is a single-minded man. He operates in simplicity, not duplicity. And if you skip over to chapter 10, uh, he he says that some were saying, oh, that Paul, his letters are big and weighty, but when he shows up, he's just weak and unimpressive. He's good at putting on a good show and paul responds to them in in 10 by saying let those people who think that way understand who i say by letter when i'm absent i do when present so in other words he's saying corinthians you need to get it straight i am who i am whether i'm away from you or whether i'm with you whether i'm writing you a letter or face to face there isn't a duplicity About me, there's simplicity in how I live my life. I'm single-minded. I don't put on a show here. I don't pretend to be this. I'm not saying I'm a spiritual man when in reality, when push comes to shove, I'm just a fleshly-minded man who operates in worldly wisdom. Okay, so that's the first one. Second, the accusation against him was that not only was he a fake, but he was fickle. He said he was going to come to the Corinthians, but then it wasn't very convenient, and so he just decided not to. And so his critics were claiming that this was because he was fickle, he wasn't dependable, he might make a plan, but if something else came up or his plan became inconvenient, he would just back out. He's just an indecisive flip-flopper whose word means nothing. Okay? So there's two accusations against Paul. He's a phony, he's a fake and he's fickle. He just flip-flops. And so Paul tells them, not only did I conduct myself with simplicity, single-mindedness, but I was also sincere. I was real in everything I did. When I said yes, I didn't actually mean no. He says in verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? So through the making of the travel plans and the changing of the travel plans, Paul wants them to know that he was sincere in his commitment to the Corinthians. In chapter 2, Paul explains that once he had realized that there were real problems with the church in Corinth, a quick friendly visit wouldn't have been appropriate and a quick stern visit wouldn't have been kind or encouraging. So he thought it would be better for the Corinthians if he not visit until those things had been cleared up. He says in 2.1, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. So Paul's telling them, I'm not fake. I'm not fickle. Instead, I behaved with simplicity and sincerity towards you. What you see is what you get. Yes, I changed my plans to visit, but not because my mood changed or because a better offer came up or because of my lack of commitment to you. My affections to you are loyal. I'm committed to you and in fact it was my love and commitment to you that caused me to change my plans so you might be upset that you don't get to see me but don't doubt my sincerity towards you okay so what is really striking for us i think when you read paul say that you know my conscience is clear that you have these accusations against me but he's basically saying i'm i'm blameless on those accusations that you you think I'm fake, you think I'm a phony, you think I'm just a flip-flopper who doesn't really care about you, but in those accusations, I'm blameless. You can bring my conscience to testify that I haven't behaved towards you in those ways. And I think it's striking for us because, probably because we see in ourselves the ease with which we fall into those same things. The false charges laid against Paul are all too often real in our own lives. And so when we hear Paul say, you know, I'm blameless in these things and we see our own lives and how often we fall in to those temptations of being fickle and phony and fake. We all feel the pull to go with whatever is convenient whatever gets us ahead makes us more comfortable or works better for us and if that means being fickle in our commitments and fake in our conduct so be it when mark mark and i were in vancouver last month we were able to have a meal with with reese scott who leads the church we are partnered with there and he was telling us about the lack of commitment and sincerity he sees in Vancouver. And it's become so rampant that it's even acquired a nickname called the BC Bail. And the BC Bail is when you make plans, but know in the back of your mind you might not actually go through with whatever it is you just agreed to, and then you cancel last minute. Sometimes, he said, even with with supper sitting on the table, a call comes, I can't make it. Plans might have been made for months, but are all tossed aside with a quick and easy, guilt-free, two-second text, sorry can't come. That's the B.C. bail. But the sad thing is I don't think it's just a Vancouver problem. We all feel that pull to go with whatever is convenient, not just in our commitments, but in our conduct as well. If it's easier to be this person around these people and then be this person around these people, then that's what I'll do because then there's no discomfort, no resistance. I can say the right words on Sunday morning and keep everyone off my back and then live in a way that is more convenient for me the rest of the week. And it may be the easiest way forward, but it's also the most dangerous way forward as well. Nathaniel Hawthorne, in his book, The Scarlet Letter, wrote, No man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. So as a kid, I loved spring because that meant that you put your rubber boots on and you went out in the ditches and the streams and the water was running and you could drop a big rock in the stream and watch the water go around and you could take your heel Right, and you could dig a little path around here, right? And no matter what you did, what always happened to the water? It always went in the path of least resistance. If you dropped that rock in, it just went around. If you took your heel and dug a little trench around the rock on the outside, that's the way it was going to go. And all too often, we're much like that spring water running in the ditch, and whatever is the path of least resistance. That's the way that we're going to go. We look for the easy route. The path that will give us the most comfortable way forward. And if that means breaking our word or putting on a show, we'll do it. So the charges of being fickle and fake that had no landing spot on Paul so often find their home With us. And maybe even this morning, the Spirit is revealing to you just how fickle you've become with others. You've changed plans not out of a great love and commitment to other parties involved, like Paul, but because it was better for you. And keeping your word has become less important than feeding your convenience. You've been operating and making and breaking plans according to the flesh out of worldly wisdom and not with a view of the grace of God in your life. Or maybe this morning the Spirit is lining up in front of you the masks that you've been wearing. He's helping you see clearly the different characters that you've been playing at. And I think this morning the Spirit is calling you to throw it off And join with Paul in a life of simplicity and sincerity. Not living a life by earthly wisdom that says do whatever you need to, to get ahead. Look after yourself, but living a life by the grace of God. That's what God is calling us into. He's calling us to live a life that's different from the world around us. The world, this fallen world that we live in, this broken world, it operates in fickle and fake. It operates on low commitment and high presentation. You only need to glance around at the magazines in the Sobeys checkout line to see that those are the values of the world. Low commitment and high presentation. And God calls his people to live differently. He calls us out of that to throw those chains off of being fickle and fake and live with simplicity and sincerity. How can we live differently like that? We need to look at what Paul says. He says to the Corinthians, I behaved with simplicity and sincerity towards you. I didn't operate with worldly wisdom. What you see and understand in my writings, you will see and understand in me. I don't make my plans according to the flesh. I don't say yes when I really mean no. I've been faithful to you in all that I've done. And then in verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. In Him it is always yes. So Paul is saying, I wasn't fickle and fake saying yes and no at the same time, because Jesus is not Yes and no at the same time. My life is yes to you because God has spoken His final yes to you in Christ. My heart is not divided to you because God's heart is not divided to you in Christ. It's a bit tough to follow Paul through this passage and maybe it's just me, but I read this and I think if they had those accusations, I would just say, I didn't come, get over it, right? (laughs) Maybe that's just me, but if they're all upset about, oh, you didn't come and you changed your plans, they'll be like, I didn't come and I changed my plans, so let's move on. But that's not how Paul operates. Paul operates a different way. Paul looks at everything through a Jesus lens. Everything is about Jesus. Everything comes back to Jesus. So here, he turns an accusation against his character and work into an exaltation of Jesus' character and work because everything is centered around Jesus. You think I'm fickle? Well, actually, I've been faithful in all my dealings with you. But guess what? It's not really about me. It all points to the faithfulness of Jesus that's how Paul operates so everything when it comes into his life it gets reordered around Jesus and when you see how much Jesus permeates every single area of Paul life, Paul's life it's amazing Paul truly lives a Christ central life Paul lives a Christ central life he takes every opportunity whether it be physical suffering or or relational breakdown, or accusations, and slander against himself, and he uses them to point himself and his listeners back to Jesus. His life revolves around Jesus. So when things come into his life, whether it be suffering or slander, they get pulled into that gravitational pull and begin to orbit around Jesus. Right? Right? Mark referenced it last week when he talked about so often we look at our life as a hierarchy of, of God, family, church. But in reality, it's Jesus at the center with everything around it. And so that's how Paul lives his life. He says Jesus is at the center. And whether this suffering comes in, like we saw in the first 11 verses, then it begins to orbit around Jesus. It begins to find its place in relation to... To Jesus at the center of my life. Whether accusations and slander come in like we see here, they then begin to take their orbit around Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is at the center of Paul's life. It wasn't just something that he gave intellectual assent to one week at summer camp 30 years ago. It is the center of his life and it permeates everything else. And no matter what comes into his life, It has to find its place in relationship to Jesus and the gospel of Jesus that is at the center. Do you see that? That is the Christ-central life that Paul lives. And so when these accusations come against him, he just begins in 19. It might seem like some sort of theological aside, but in 19, he's just going to say, okay, these accusations have come in and now they have to begin to orbit around the Gospel of Jesus, which is at the center of my life. So, you're going to see that. This is what he does. So he says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. In Jesus Christ is not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. And many people, when they think of God, the first word that comes to mind is not yes, it's no. When they think of God, they just think of no, no, no. He steals my pleasure. He narrows my life. He boxes me in. Jesus is no. But in reality, Jesus is exceedingly gracious to us. He is yes, Paul tells us, that in him it is always yes. And sure, he may say no to some things, of course he says no to some things, but his no is a yes to our joy and our life. His no to some things is a yes to our joy and our life, to the advancement of joy and In our life. In the same way that I say no to becoming a meth addict so that I could advance my joy in my life. Right? Same way. Okay? So yeah, Jesus does have some no's. But His no's are for yes's. Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. And then look what He says. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. If you underline, you should probably underline that. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Paul wants the Corinthians to see that no matter what they think of Him, God's promises are certain in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. How many promises? All the promises find their yes in Jesus. The Bible tells us that all scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfills the promises of God. After Jesus had resurrected, Luke tells us that two men were traveling on the road to Emmaus. Jesus kind of just shows up alongside of them after a conversation. It says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of the Bible is fulfilled in Jesus. But here, Paul specifies that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. It's like this. If you, as a child of God, you took all the promises of God and you listed them out, okay? Our list people are getting excited already. (laughs) And we listed them out, okay? And you're there with your pen and you say, okay, here's a promise. Yeah, okay, We'll check that one. That one? Yeah, yeah, okay. We'll check that one. Now this one, I'm not sure. And Jesus just goes, give me the pen. Check, 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 check. All the promises of God are fulfilled in me. All the promises of God for you as a child of God are yes. He just goes, yes, yes, yes. He has a stamp. It's big. It says yes. And he goes, yes, 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 yes. All the promises of God are fulfilled for you in Jesus. He says, I've confirmed them all. I've secured them all. I've purchased them all by My blood on the cross for you. Check them all. Now you might say, well, hold up because I've been reading through the Old Testament and I know that all of God's promises aren't necessarily promises of blessing. We know that there's some promises of judgment as well. Right? He gives out some pretty stern promises of judgment in the Old Testament. But we can praise God that even those promises of judgment find their yes in Christ because He bore the judgment promises on Himself on the cross. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So Christ became the curse for us. He didn't back out because He wasn't feeling like it. He didn't look like a, for a more comfortable route. He didn't vacillate. The Bible says He set His face to Jerusalem, to go into all that God had called him to. He set his face to the betrayal. He set his face to the torture. He set his face to the unjust trial. He set his face to the mocking. He set his face to the whipping. He set his face to the cross of Jesus Christ. And he became the curse for you so that you then can have all the blessings flow to you. He took the yes of the promises of judgment for sin on himself. And so now I can be sure that God's promises of blessing will flow to me. And if God did not spare his own son, but kept his promise to judge my sin on his son, then I can be sure he will gift me all that I need for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Speaking on this verse one commentator says this, Every sinner who comes to God in Christ with all his needs finds God coming to him in Christ with all his promises. When a sinful person meets the holy God in Christ, what he hears is yes. Do you love me? Yes. Will you forgive me? Yes. Will you accept me? Yes. Will you help me change? Yes. Will you give me power to serve you? Yes. Will you keep me? Yes. Will you show me your glory? Yes. And so the reason Jesus is our author, our maker, our ransom, our savior, our helper, our healer, our blessed redeemer, our answer, and our saving grace is because all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. Now look at this interesting thing that Paul says next. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So Paul is saying all God's promises are yes in Christ and we now in Christ say amen to God. And amen is one of the probably the most popular words in christianity right we use it so much and we often just see it as a way to hang up the phone in our conversation with god right amen i'm done right but what it really means is so be it or sometimes it's translated truly like when jesus says truly truly i tell you what he's saying is amen amen what i tell you what amen is then is an affirmation of truth and earnest I agree, okay? So when you say amen at the end of a prayer, it's so be it. I agree earnestly, deep down, yes. Right? So what Paul is saying then is all the promises of God are yes in Christ, and we now in Christ say yes to God's promises. Christ secured us the promises of God and now we say yes to those promises. And not just in a past tense where we look back and see a time when we said yes to God's promises. Not just in a future sense when we look forward and see that God's promises will be fulfilled in Christ. Right now, today, we say yes to God's promises. This morning, we're not talking about past or future, but right now, today. Am I forgiven? Is the power of the Spirit for me? Can I be delivered from the power of sin in my life? Can my marriage begin to be restored? Can I be reconciled to my brother? Is there wisdom and mercy and comfort and peace available to me? Because of Jesus, it is yes, 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 yes. All the promises of God for you today are yes in Christ. So can you this morning say yes in Christ to God's promises? (laughs) Not just as a time back, you know, I was forgiven back in 1973. Are you forgiven this morning? Can you say yes to God's promise that you are forgiven this morning? Or are you carrying a heavy pack of guilt and shame and regret and walking around? Not just, uh, yeah, I know, God will deliver me from this addiction when He comes in glory. You say yes to God's promise that He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Look at how Paul finishes this section. Not only are God's promises certain in Christ, but God's people are secure in Christ as well. He says at the end, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so he wants to remind the, the Corinthians that earthly plans may change, circumstances may arise that cause Situations to take a turn, but God's plan of saving you does not change. God is not fickle when it comes to the salvation of His children. He establishes you with His Son, He puts His Spirit in you as a guarantee, He seals you, He gives you the Spirit a down payment of what's to come, and His plan to save you will not change. No circumstance will arise that will cause Him to go back on His decision. You are secure in Christ. He has established you in Christ. He's put His seal on you. He's given you His Spirit as a guarantee of what's to come. If you've been adopted into God's family, He just doesn't wake up one morning and in His fickleness decide to rip up the adoption papers and kick you out of the family. You are secure in Christ. And so Paul's saying, my plans might have changed, but God's plans don't change. God's promises are certain in Jesus. God's people are secure in Jesus. And to these great truths we say, yes. And so a final question then to bring it home, for us is that when we see Paul have such a Christ-centered view of this difficult situation he was in, we need to ask ourselves when it comes to my decision making, when it comes to my commitments, when it comes to my conduct, have I, like Paul, brought those into orbit around the gospel? Have I put Christ at the center and allowed everything else to fall in line around him? When we see Paul have such this, this Christ-saturated view of life where these, this slander comes or this suffering comes or these accusations come and we see them just fall into line orbiting around the gospel that's at the center of his life. We need to ask ourselves, is that how we view the gospel? Or is it just a few words that we said yes to a few years ago or a few months ago or a few weeks ago? Emma read it out, that at the center of the throne room of heaven is the Lamb who was slain. That's where He belongs, is at the center. Is the Lamb who was slain, is at the center. If we do that, then we can find our freedom from those chains of being fickle and fake that we looked at at the first. Because now, I can see God's promises are yes for me in Christ, So now I don't need to put on a show and be a different person to different people trying to gain acceptance because God has promised to never reject me. I'm accepted in Christ. So I don't have to try to put on a show to gain your acceptance. I know I've been accepted in Christ. I can prioritize commitment over convenience because I know that Jesus is committed to me and I'm secure in Him. Do you see how Paul says, this is how I behaved in sincerity and in simplicity for Christ is these things to me. So when Christ is those things to us, then we are able to behave in the same way. In simplicity and in sincerity. Not being double-minded, not living a, a a life of duplicity. We can be sincere. To use Dave's picture, we don't need to try to scrub the deck clean because we have Jesus as the keel and the anchor. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that all the promises that You have given us find their yes in Jesus. We thank You for how simple that is, how weighty that is, that we can just say it's not our doing, but it's Jesus' work on the cross that has purchased those promises for us. And we just say this morning that we confess our uh, duplicity and our insincerity, and we want to live with simplicity and sincerity before You. We don't want to go back on our commitments out of convenience for ourselves. We want to value our Word. And we don't want to be fake or phony. We want to be sincere people that are single-minded in our pursuit of You. And so we pray, Father, that You would help us to reorient our lives. That the Gospel would be at the center. And all these things would revolve around it. That we'd look at everything that comes into our life through the lens of the gospel. That it wouldn't just be words that we've said yes to in our mind. But it would be a a value and a weight at the center of our life. And so we pray that you would change us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.